0: This is Lawyer Up. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack DeRora. We're business and trial lawyers with the B-Hall Law Group in Columbus, Ohio. Today, we're talking with Dr. Patricia Gabby, a pediatrician, whose focus is infant mortality. Welcome, Dr. Pat.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
2: Dr. Pat, tell us about your practice and how it is that you focused lately on infant mortality.
1: So um, I, I don't practice actually today. I have for 40 years in the past and I always worked in basically in public clinics. I had my own private practice actually in a public clinic at one point. So I've worked for most of my life with uh, families that came in to see me and they were covered by Medicaid. So they were medic- had Medicaid insurance, which meant they were living at the poverty level or below the poverty level, and I always admired these families. They had such strength, such resilience, such love for their children, and um, so you know I, I I can go over how I got involved in infant mortality, but in a in a minute, but. I was struck when I was in Tennessee and I was a faculty member at Vanderbilt, how many black families came into the clinic with premature babies. So their babies had been born too early and they'd often been in the NICU and they'd often had difficulty with um, lung disease. So they came in with an infant with an oxygen tank. Now, you know, that's what an older person with emphysema has. Why should a newborn or an infant have to start life with an oxygen tank? So that got me thinking about what can we do about this? How can we help this?
2: Your story is a great example of how personal experience develops one's focus well, all right, you're at Vanderbilt, but you didn't create Moms to to Be in Vanderbilt. You created it here. So how did you make that transition?
1: Well, when I was at Vanderbilt, I started a program called Nurses for Newborns to go out and help these newborns that came home often with um, serious illnesses. And I got to looking at black infant mortality rate, black prematurity rate, which was always very high. But I came to Ohio, back to Ohio in 2008, and I was really struck by how high the black infant mortality rate was in Ohio. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I kept looking at the numbers and looking at the numbers, and can they be 15 infant deaths per thousand in a black community? In a black in this state, and maybe five per thousand for white families, the disparities was overwhelming, and um, you know really touched me. And I said, I've got to do something about this.
2: Tell me how you measure infant mortality.
1: So it's a standard measure, and it's based on one thousand live births. 1,000 live births per thousand births in that year so you know if they're like in Columbus maybe 4,000 black babies born uh, per year then 10 or 15 per thousand are going to die that year so it it measures the health of a neighborhood of a county of a state it's a direct reflection of the health of the community that's what makes it so powerful
2: and it's in that we're, we're measuring mortality let me get that right during the first year of life
1: yes infant mortality so it can be a baby that is born at basically at a pre-viable peri-viable age let's say 22 weeks of gestation up until full term, 40 weeks of gestation. So if that baby comes out and is breathing, has a heartbeat, it's called a live birth.
0: Dr. Pat, how does racism play into the um, disparity with the minority community for infant mortality?
1: Well, that's a really important question and we haven't really acknowledged that until recently and not acknowledge it in such a widespread way that we do now and you know we have to explain why is there such disparities there's no real genetic difference between a black mom and a white mom or a hispanic mom i mean the genetic patterns of all of us are so similar that it, it's not a genetic thing. So what causes this? How can we explain such a difference? You know, when I was at Vanderbilt, I could um, I started look, thinking about this huge disparities and thinking about slavery and thinking about how families who were raised in a slavery family and in an environment where slavery was accepted were separated from their children often at when the children were young age and parents weren't allowed to marry so i thought you know that has to have an impact Um, you know the the we know now epigenetics so the environment has a big impact on the basic genetic structure and so that you know got me thinking about Uh, how can we change the basic environmental structure that Black women and Black dads raise their children? But we have to go back and say, well, then how did this, um, this difference occur? And, you know, when you go back in history and you think of the Civil War and people fought to the death to keep slavery, So there's always been this huge tension between the minority population and the the majority population. So we call it structural racism and we can document that and you as lawyers can do a really good job at that. Um, We then, you know, in medicine, for example, we like to think we have no biases, we treat everyone alike, but we know there are implicit biases also and those we call racism.
2: Dr. Pat, I've used the word moms-to-be, but our audience doesn't really know what moms-to-be is. I mean, you've got a real structure going on in Columbus. Talk about that.
1: Well, thank you, Jack. So um, when I came back in 2008, a friend put me on Governor Strickland's infant mortality task force because... The government and public health at the state level and local have always been interested in this issue. And we did a nice report, had lots of professionals from across the state who had great ideas about why this existed, why this disparity. And after the report, I think we put it on the shelf in 2009. And I said like, you can't do a report and not do action. You know, we have to find out why these African-American women and dads living in urban neighborhoods in our big C cities, primarily, why are they suffering so many infant losses? We have to learn from them. We have to go into the neighborhood and we have to hear their stories. We have to learn why we're losing so many black babies. So I worked I wrote a grant to Ohio State and to make a long story short, we wound up in Wineland Park. And I'm I'm smiling because Jack has been there many times. So we located in a African American church, Grace Missionary Baptist Church, ten years ago. We started in their meeting room, in the basement, in in their kitchen. And that became Moms to Be. And I can tell you the whole story about now we're celebrating our 10 year anniversary and we're still in Grace Missionary Baptist Church in Wineland Park. But we've expanded. We're now in eight neighborhoods in Columbus, mainly in churches. And we have a group model. We invite every pregnant woman and say, come in cook with us, eat with us, share your stories, and learn with us. And we learn from you. So that's moms-to-be in a nutshell.
0: Where do you get your funding for that? Uh, How do you raise money? Are you still using grant
1: money? So um, raising money is always a challenge. I wrote the first grant for $48,000 to Ohio State, and they funded it, and – uh, about a, two years after we, we received the funding and started, I was invited to the Rotary Club. Is that right? No, the Kiwanis. Sorry, Jack. <laughs> Missed that. <laughs> Could have been the Rotary Club, but it was the Kiwanis. They invited me to be a guest speaker. And I was struck when they read the mission of the Kiwanis Club. I said, hey, that's our mission help families, help, you know, children. And so that started a a partnership with the Kiwanis, for example, and with Jack, who then started coming in and snooping around to see what we were doing in that church. (laughs) And so I've had a lot of foundations that have helped fund us. Um, Mainly now we are funded through the governor's Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, which is TANF funds, Temporary Assistance to Needy Family funds. Medicaid um, celebrates, uh, uh, funds us to celebrate one, a community initiative here. And then OSU has started to fund us with some really important grants to improve community health com- disparities and, and do more outreach.
0: If somebody is looking for your services or knows somebody who wants your services, how do they find you then?
1: Well, if they Google moms, M-O-M-S, the number two and capital B, uh, we should come up. And it, our email is moms2b at osumc.edu. So they can email us and, and we'll get right back to them.
0: Dr. Pat, are these um, services only for minority moms or uh, uh, less financially solvent moms? Or are they for every mom?
1: They're for every mom who's pregnant. Um, we don't have barriers. Any mom in the neighborhood, we like to focus on on these eight neighborhoods, which the mayor and Columbus um, Public Health have identified as the highest risk neighborhoods. So 50% or more of the infant deaths occur in these neighborhoods. So we're in the Hilltop, we're in Franklinton, we're in South, we're at Southeast, Wineland Park, Near East, and then on the North side and in Linden. So we're in the areas where you hear the crime is the highest, where the food insecurity is the highest, where the housing may, is the the least of least secure and all those are high-risk neighborhoods and again that infant mortality reflects the conditions in the neighborhood
2: what's an average session look like at moms to be when you bring these moms in i know you're there for a couple hours what kind of services are you providing those women
1: well as as you know jack when you walk into to Wineland Park, um, Grace Missionary Baptist Church. You uh, you may be greeted at the door, and you may know your, we know, know your name. We give you a hug. We say, welcome. And then you come down the stairs, and you may see a lot of donations out on the tables in front of our meeting room. And then you walk in, and again, this occurs between 1030 and 11 a.m., and... and um, at this session, and it's always on Wednesday the same time. So you are greeted by a group of a variety of our team. They may be community health workers, social workers, nurses, dietitians, doctors, medical students. We have a whole range of health professional students and, um, and staff. And they're given a name tag and said, help yourself to water, fresh water, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables. We want to teach healthy nutrition. And then we join in a sister brother circle. So why do I say brothers? Because we have a dad's to be program too. And your father of your babies invited or a support person and all your children. So your children go upstairs to a Uh, play area, developmentally appropriate play area. And then you sit in a circle with about 30 people and we have a lesson. We have a couple of lessons. One will be on stress reduction. One will be on healthy eating. Um, That's after you introduce yourself. So women are taught how to be part of a group, how to speak up, how to be interactive and how to be empowered. So that's um, the small lessons, and then we break up into bigger lessons, and then we all eat together about 12.30. And it's a heart-healthy meal, uh, hot and heart-healthy. And then we go home, and we try to make it so moms and dads and children don't want to leave. They want to come back the next week to see what's coming next. But it's not
2: just... Talking, I mean, you're actually providing guidance to these women, whether it's some kind of a social work or a pediatrician is there? Am I correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. And we try to help women set goals. Like one of our lessons is on setting smart goals. Where do you want to see yourself next year? Um, we do. A, it's very holistic, and there's a half an hour. With individually one-on-one with uh, one of our team members so that they can go over um, what are their issues that week. We call it a ch- check-in. So how is your housing, your food, your emotional health? Um, do you have any difficulties with utilities? With, basically we go over food, housing, utilities, and, and any special needs. And then getting ready to have that baby that pregnancy, do you have a safe place for the baby to sleep? A car seat when you leave the hospital. And breastfeeding, we really emphasize breastfeeding. So it's a lot of hands on teaching, interactive teaching, and um, a lot, try to make it a very engaging, fun session. So women always come back.
2: how do you how do you know if you're making a dent how do you measure progress
1: so you've always asked me that every time you've come to wineland park how do you know you're making a difference initially the first four or five years um we said um, how what's happening in wineland park and so columbus public health helped us measure infant mortality rates and we had decreased it significantly. We went from about 14 per thousand down to three per thousand. And that was when we'd been, we compared before we were there with after we were there. So that was really an important finding and very encouraging. And breastfeeding increased and smoking decreased. We we then developed more rigorous ways because we had more moms that were coming. So... We've always collected a lot of data. Finding a control and measuring it in a rigorous way has been the challenge. Um, You know, this is, but we do have comparison groups, and we have now there's methodology that can basically recreate a randomized controlled control biostatistically. It's called propensity scored. So we took our moms that had attended at least two sessions at mom's to be and compared them with all the same characteristics of a mom that hadn't come to mom's to be. And so that was really encouraging. We saw significant reduction in low birth weight and 55% reduction in infant deaths in our population compared to another population.
0: Wow, using science to uh, solve a public health crisis. That's a novel idea.
1: Oh, it's important. <laughs> let's get this message out there.
0: Dr. Pat, you're also an advocate. Um, I was reading your proponent testimony for um, in the Senate. Um, can you talk a little bit about, and this was recently, what you were doing there and what's the Senate
1: doing? It's called, let's see, the 133rd General Assembly, and it's called a, um, a Senate Resolution number 14, and our Senator Herschel Craig came to me uh, as they were as they were um, proposing this. It's a concurrent resolution, that's why it says SCR number 14. So they declared racism a public health crisis and they asked the governor to establish a working group to promote racial equality equity in Ohio. So I, I wrote a testimony because of COVID. I, I, I don't go out much in public anymore. We do everything virtually for moms-to-be also. And so my testimony was entered into the, um, the Senate um, at history. I, I saw it there the other day when I looked for the resolution. So I would appreciate if you and all of your lawyer friends would look at that resolution. It's an amazing resolution and it talks about all the things that we're concerned about in terms of health equity and housing and um, food and, and goes over the history of why we have structural racism and implicit racism.
0: I was uh, reading through the resolution, and I do think that it's important and and very well done, but I don't see that it's been passed by the Senate yet. Do you know what the progress
1: is, or do you talk to your senator about it? I don't know what the progress is, and I also saw it hadn't been voted on. So I think we can advocate for that. You know, I know about five years ago, uh, Senator Shannon Jones and um, Senator Charlita Tavares did an infant mortality as a public health crisis resolution, and that was passed. And we had an infant mortality commission, and I was on that. Governor John Kasich appointed me we came up with important legislation from that commission. So that was related to infant mortality and maternal and infant health. This resolution is broader and asks for a study, you know, across the state and we need to do that. And so I would advocate for people to look at that and look, ask their senators about how this can be moved forward.
0: Did the governor establish the working group yet? I know this was a, a this happened in June when you were testifying. Do You know if there's any uh, uh, progress on the on the, from the governor as, as with regard to the working group.
1: I do not know. And you know I haven't been asked about it, so I I don't know. I'm leaving this to the lawyers. <laughs> Follow up on. <laughs> Hey, Dr. Pat, you
2: talk a lot about systemic problems that lead to infant mortality. Now, there's a segment of society out there, I'll call them the bootstrappers. Those are the folks who say everybody should be able to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. I did it. Why can't these other people? What do you say to those folks?
1: Well, I think that's an important um you know, approach to these these challenges. I, I don't dis I don't dismiss that, and I think we have a lot of African American families who've done that. Um, you know, I think when you look at the inequities in health, though, you see that more more black babies are born low birth weight and premature, and they start out life with a disadvantage. Whereas we're going to have a full term, healthy, bouncing seven and a half pound white baby, they may be struggling with a three and a half pound premature baby who spends months in the neonatal intensive care unit and doesn't start out life with the same potential as a white baby. So that baby's at a disadvantage to start with and may have learning disabilities, may have more struggles in school, so, so some of that is through no fault of their own. Now we, you know, we we do set up safety nets, and we do try to help. But we've had so much redlining, um, keeping people in certain areas, and you know, unemployment is so high in some of those areas. So that it's it's a good argument, but it doesn't carry through with solving the problems.
0: One of the uh, things that struck me reading your testimony uh, with the resolution was how evictions play a part in uh, the systemic, I guess, uh, racism for minorities I'm concerned because that's probably going to go up. Evictions are going to go up now with regard to what's happening in our economy. Do you fear an increase in your customers, clients, the people that are going to come and see you because of the coronavirus and the lack of
1: jobs? John, I think that's one of the most important issues that we need to solve and that could turn around and have a significant impact on infant mortality. Um, because we see that women with children make up most of the population in the homeless shelter. They're, I mean, they're not most of the population, but if they're pregnant and Black um, and in the homeless shelter, you look at that population as mainly Black women. So Black women get evicted. And there's 30, I mean, there's evictions in this county, We eviction rates. So if you think about what happens to that family, if she's pregnant, if she has other children, they're disrupted from school, they're under incredible stress, and they, they can't get their mail, If they, they can't get a job offer, they have to spend their days going around looking for housing and they may wind back up in the shelter again. So if we did, and I remember Tony Blair speaking about this, that in in England when he was prime minister, he was determined to assure housing for everyone. So their public housing is, I think probably the basis of their social security net, safety net. If every single family had a secure house, it would help with our education system. It would help our families keep their jobs. It would provide more than a handout. I mean, it, it it's the stability of the neighborhood and the city. Um, When when I was working on the Infant Mortality Commission, Dr. Arthur James and I met with um, the housing finance group in the state. They came kicking and screaming, I can say, to Shannon Jones's office. What does housing have to do with infant mortality, they ask. And um, Senator Jones and Arthur and I were so convincing that they have started to look at public financing for housing for low income people uh, i can talk to you more about that but it's a it's the foundation of our communities
2: dr pat are some of your expecting patients homeless
1: oh yes we get homeless Pregnant women from the Van Buren Homeless Shelter. Every day, all the time, not every day, but I'd say 10% of our moms have been homeless. 25% are housing insecure. But you, a lot of our moms have stories of being in the shelter. It's not uncommon.
2: So when these women who are homeless go to the hospital to give birth, who's there to hold their hand and accompany them?
1: Well, about 7% of our moms have no one to be with them. Um, You know, the nurses are good and our hospitals are good, uh, but some of them have no one to be with them. You know, we have women who've been in foster care, you know, who, who they've... Aged out of foster care, they, they don't have a good family support. Um, I think it's surprising. I think we in general have a hundred and twenty or hundred and forty pregnant women in a homeless shelter. Uh, Michelle Heritage can set me straight on that. But there's always a, a too many women in shelter in pregnant women in the homeless shelter and the family shelter. I'm not even counting the family shelter, I'm just talking about Van Buren.
2: You've talked about implicit bias, or at least I think you mentioned it in your testimony. That's a term that we're just starting to hear with some degree of frequency. Tell me about implicit bias, maybe in the medical profession, in how you see women being treated, in general, your experience.
1: Well, I've learned from friends who are black who've gone to the doctor who have told me stories about how they were treated. How, you know, because I went in and I I had an emergency, I didn't dress up like I usually do. Then I was treated like a lower class citizen. You know, I may have had to wait longer. I mean, one one of my friends told me about not getting anesthesia while they were being sutured. I mean, I'm just shocked, and that I hope doesn't happen anymore. Um, but implicit bias in medicine is also it it may carry over into how we think of the disease process. That you know, more African Americans may have a certain number of um, comorbidities like type two diabetes. Um, they may have more hypertension, which they do. They may have more trouble with diabetes. So they have a lot more comorbidities and they may not be treated with as much respect because they're more complicated. Um, and then, in you know, we need to get more black young doctors, young students in the pipeline because now we know that if you're a black patient, you prefer you can connect better with a black doctor. And that makes a big difference on how you comply with recommendations. For example, take your cholesterol medicines or your diabetes medicines. So, you know, and it may be the implicit bias, some barriers that prevent that, that good connection between the doctor-patient and the doctor-patient relationship.
2: Let me switch the subject just a little. <clears throat> I thought I had heard that there was some reticence in the black community to adopt or become comfortable with birth control. Am I right about that?
1: Well, I think, you know, I think it's patient stories getting passed around. And um, there, you know, there have been blood clots from birth control. And there may have been more in the black community and Black women. I, I'm not exactly sure about that, but I know that is one concern about the side effects of birth control. There's concern about putting, you know, medication in my body, putting a foreign body if I'm going to have an intrauterine device. Um, there's more interest, I think, in having a permanent... Like a tubal ligation rather than using um, hormones for birth control, so there are there is um, some more questioning, maybe. I don't know uh, if it's more it's different in the black community, but we do a lot of education at moms to be about how do you s- safely space that next pregnancy? Because we know rapid, repeat births in any population, but especially the black population, increases your risk of having a miscarriage or a, a premature baby. So we do want to help moms, and we try very hard at Moms to Be, to help moms space their babies 18 months to two years apart.
2: Columbus has a program that's funded by the city. It's called Celebrate, wait a minute, am I getting this right, Celebrate One? yes what's the function of that group
1: well it's a really important group Um, it is a coalition of um, hospitals of agencies public health and um, it's broader than health it includes development um, the government agencies that are focused on neighborhood revitalization government um, involvement in again revitalization of neighborhoods. That's also so essential for neighborhoods. So they fund um, moms to be indirectly through Medicaid funds, and we're part of a coalition so we can learn from each other. And their mission is to reduce disparities and in infant mortality in in Franklin County and Columbus. So it's a it's a potentially and I think they've shown we have reduced black infant mortality and we haven't have reduced the trends in infant mortality over the last 3 years. So especially we see a uh, drop in black infant mortality.
2: What's your prescription for America? Vote well i like that one but beyond voting you know is there something you have to say to the average person in columbus about infant mortality is there something the average joe can do or at least should be thinking about
1: well you know i think you know showing respect for every pregnant woman especially black pregnant women and offering helping hands, you know, wherever you see them, on the bus. I I, I think we need to show so much respect for pregnant women, uh, that they're carrying our future. And they often are dismissed, uh, especially black pregnant women, I don't think they get the respect they deserve. So that's just little things. Um, and then getting involved And in, you know, we always need volunteers. And Moms to Be, and it's an, we're an Ohio State University College of Medicine, Department of OBGYN, community arm of the medical center. So we are, um, you know, we're a wonderful organization to volunteer, to get involved, to look us up. And there are other organizations in, in Columbus. Mount Carmel Health Foundation has been a huge supporter We have similar missions, save every baby, save every mom, support that dad and that mom together. Um, So the Columbus Foundation's been a big supporter of ours. United Way, we are a United Way uh, supported program. So we have all these community charities, that are so focused on the neighborhoods and helping are other ways to get involved. Um, You know, all of the hospitals in Columbus work on the same mission in some degree. There is an organization, again, Celebrate One. You can find a favorite group in Celebrate One. Um, Nationwide Children's Hospital is a huge proponent of what we're doing. And they have organization too, Better Birth Outcomes. So there are a lot of Columbus um, agencies, charities that have the same mission. Probably the Rotary and Kiwanis still do also. And you know, there are a lot of good organizations out there and speak up. Say, why do we have this disparities? What can we do to help? jobs, employment, childcare, schools, all of those are are really important avenues to reduce racism, to reduce implicit bias, to help support our families. We could be raising lawyers.
2: Probably there's a segment in society that would suggest that we don't raise more lawyers, but we'll leave that thought aside. Before we start wrapping this up, Dr. Pat, is there some question or something you'd like us to cover that we haven't covered?
1: Reading more about uh, black women's experiences, black women's, um, you know, now, especially we have a, a vice presidential nominee who has a very diverse background Um, She calls herself an American. She doesn't say I'm African-American, but she has African roots, Indian, Asian roots, and she's a wonderful face for America, really, reflection of America. So I think there'll be a lot more interest. So really read and talk and ask questions about why this disparities and how I can do my bit to solve it.
0: Kamala Harris is also a lawyer. I'll point out.
1: I have a daughter who's a lawyer, so I, 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 I respect <laughs> lawyers.
0: Dr. Pat, um, I want to thank you for the important work you do in the minority community and uh, tell you Godspeed for your mission. It is so important. Um, I've learned so much about it that I appreciate you coming in and the information.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Dr. Pat, you're one of my favorites. I refer to you as an army of one.
1: <laughs> well, Twinkle, I have Twinkle with me. Well, she's your,
2: she's your adjutant. You're the general. John, you wanted to talk about implicit bias in the law. That's a great subject. And, you know, one of the people who's commented most about it probably is the uh, lawyer down south, Brian Stevenson.
0: Well, I was just kind of curious uh, if you uh, recognize it in your practice, because when I was listening to Dr. Pat, I was thinking about um, my practice and, and
2: where I see what I think is some implicit bias. Well, regrettably, or maybe fortunately, I can't say I've seen it in my practice, but I was listening to a criminal defense lawyer a week ago, Diane Menashi. I think that's she, how she pronounces it. She is a leading criminal defense attorney in town. And she was talking about it with great strength and great fervor how, how widespread it is. Since I don't have much experience, why don't you tell us about your experience? Well, mine is just got me thinking about it. It's kind of interesting.
0: So, you know, when we're doing injury claims, we're dealing with insurance and insurance adjusters. They're primarily, uh, from my experience, middle-class uh, white uh, people. And they take advantage of our minority and um, low-income clients. And um, it's hard to fight against it. I'll give you a perfect example. Please. A client, get, client gets into a car crash. It's not their fault, their car is, um, is a total loss, and they want fair value for their car. Insurance company, it doesn't take much to, to make a couple of quick assumptions that this person had an older car, needed it for work, and they can make an offer that's just not fair because that person needs the money to get another car. You take the same client that maybe lives in the suburbs, has a couple of cars, Um, and uh, they got a better bargaining position because they don't need to settle on the car that quick.
2: Uh Uh,
0: I call it economic blackmail, and a lot of our clients at the firm are in that position where not just their car, but their personal injury claim. They need the money. They may have been out of work because of the injury. Uh, They're willing to take a lot less and a lot quicker and I think the insurance industry feeds on that for a large part. That's my anecdotal
2: experience. Well, I think your anecdotal experience, especially considering how long you've been at it, has value. And I don't think I, I can see a good basis for, for why you say that. And unfortunately, all of us, if we're to be honest with ourselves, we all make judgments of people. The problem is, and you have to think about that phrase, implicit bias, because it's implicit, we're not even aware that we're making those judgments. That's the killer.
0: It it is, and and I have to say that I don't think in the claims processing it's a black and white or, you know, issue, because there really isn't any way to tell from the insurance perspective at that early stage what, what the person's race is. But it's more of an economic um, disadvantage that these people have that's
2: played upon, I think, by
0: the insurance industry. So. Well,
2: well, bias can take on more flavors than just race, right? Sure. Bias yeah. can, can take place along the lines of who's got more power in the negotiation? Can I for lack of a better phrase, just sort of steamroll this, this claimant. The other thing that, the other thing
0: Dr. Pat was talking about were evictions. Well, you, you and I have been on both sides of the eviction process. Right. Uh, and people that own rentals have their own bills and their own mortgages they have to pay. Oftentimes they need that rental income as part of their own income, and it creates a very difficult situation for them. I don't know if I'm smart enough to figure that uh, dynamic out uh, to help both sides of that transaction.
2: Well, the good news is uh, for the average working person, there's now some good legal assistance provided by legal aid. So there are lawyers down there ready to help, which provides some degree of buffer because, you know, the average working person who's renting. He's clueless as to what his options may be when the eviction notice comes. Yeah, there'd be nice, it'd be nice to see some
0: funding available to keep people in their homes, uh, to, you know, over a bad stretch of time. But eventually that owner, landlord, you know, has a business that uh, he or she has to run too. And um, I'd really like to see some funding for people that
2: get into a tough spot so they can pay their rent. Yeah, and regrettably, I don't think that's in the cards right now at the national level. Lawyer Up will be back in a few weeks with Toby Hoover, the Executive Director of the Ohio Coalition Against Gun Violence. We'll be talking about, you guessed it, gun violence. I invite you to subscribe to Lawyer Up by going to our website, LawyerUpColumbus.com. You can also download our podcast by going to the podcast app, on your phone. Until next time, remember to lawyer up. So long.